Well, hey there, this is Kim Constable. Welcome to the Kim Constable podcast. Nobody cares, work harder. I feel like sometimes inserting a good swear word in there and like slapping the desk at the same time. But anyway, nobody cares, work harder. Nice to see you all. Well, not really seeing you, I'm hearing you, but nice to speak to you all this week. How has your week been? Has it been good? Well, my week has been absolutely wonderful and it's made even better by the very special guest that I have on my podcast today, who is the absolutely incredible Alex Hormozy. Yes, Alex is the other half of Leila Hormozy, who I interviewed on the podcast a few weeks ago, who you guys absolutely loved. And once I spoke to Leila and I heard her story and... I realized that she was just one half of a power couple. I just knew that I had to get the other half on the podcast. And so Alex Ramosi, let me tell you, does not agree to very many podcast interviews. So I feel massively privileged that he gave me, let me tell you, a good 90 minutes of his time uh, to be on this podcast. So I felt extremely privileged to be able to answer him, to ask him questions. And I think he kind of thought that this was going to be a business podcast. Well, I don't actually know what he thought, but he probably thought I was going to ask him loads of strategy questions. But of course, me being me, I wanted to know, Alex, what was your childhood like? And what made you tick? And why are you the way you are? And we had so much fun on this podcast. And I just know you're going to love him. This is like one of the smartest men I've ever met in my entire life. Let me tell you, I've met a lot of smart men, right? And whenever I was researching him and watching some of his videos, I was just like, holy shit, what the hell am I going to ask this guy? I like, what the fuck do you ask the smartest man in the world? Really? Like, what kind of questions do you actually ask him? So, um, and I kind of got all nervous as well. It was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit nervous now. Like, what, what if I make myself look stupid? What if my questions aren't intelligent enough? Listen, I do not get that way. So <laughs> it was really quite funny. But um, it was really, really, really fantastic talking to Alex. Oh my God, he shared so much good stuff, so much strategy. Uh, really, you're going to find out in this episode what it actually takes to be successful. And it's not what you think, right? I, I would say you just need to pull up your big girl pants and get on with it and work harder. Well, Alex had a few other hints and tips and tricks and strategies that he uses to help, you know, people break through their belief structure, their belief, the, the patterns that they hold in place that stops them from being successful. Loads of really good advice on that, as well as just speaking really candidly about his experiences and what has shaped him into who he is today. And let me tell you something else for free. After the podcast ended, right? He stayed on with me for another 30 minutes and literally mapped out an entire business strategy for me for the Sculpted Vegan for next year. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You see, <laughs> I was like totally blown away. And I am a good soldier. I do what I'm told. So I'm really going to take away, you know, if someone <laughs> far more successful than me gives me uh, their advice and says, here's what I think you should do. Do you know what I do? I do it. I take the advice. I don't go, well, that sounds really good, but I'm going to do this thing over here. No, 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 no. That's why I'm successful because I do what I'm told by someone who knows what they're talking about. So Alex, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for your advice. Truly, I deeply appreciate the fact that you even gave me 30 minutes of your time to give me free business advice that I probably would have had to have paid, I don't know, 30 minutes of Alex Ramosi's time to advise me on business, maybe $100,000. Alex, I owe you. And I swear to God, whatever you need, I'm here for you. So I'm going to stop waffling on now. You're like, okay, Kim, shut the fuck up. Just get to the good stuff. I'm getting there, I promise, right? But before we get there, I have to tell you this week or this month, this month's podcast winner for November is the beautiful 
Cassie L. Casanova. I'm not sure if that's her real name, but it's a fantastic name. Cassie L. Casanova. Thank you so much for your absolutely smashing review. I loved reading it. And if you too would like to win one of our Sculpted Vegan programs, all you got to do is leave me a nice review, not a shitty review, a nice review. Wherever you listen to this podcast, take a screenshot of it, send me the screenshot on Instagram. And my beautiful assistant, Christina, will choose a wonderful winner. She loves reading all of the all of the uh, things you say on the podcast and she will uh, choose a wonderful winner and she or a very worthy winner and we will announce it at the start of January for December's winner. So I'm going to shut up now and I'm going to go to the podcast um, interview and I will chat to you guys again at the end. <laughs> Alex, literally we haven't hardly even had a conversation before this podcast started, which is the way I like it. But thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I've been looking forward to it since uh, I came on the calendar. You uh, are probably, I would say, one of the only people on this earth that I have found out is busier than me. (laughs) Or more productive, actually, I would say, because there's being busy and then there's being productive. But I started following you on Instagram ever since I interviewed your fabulous wife a couple of weeks ago and started like stalking her and stalking you on Instagram. And I was like, wow, this guy actually, I think, has more done in a day than I do. And so just for that, I wanted to interview. That that makes me sound like I'm blowing myself up and I don't really mean it to be that way. But um, you are pretty, uh, you are pretty fabulous. So I'm going to read out a little bit of a, I'm going to like embarrass you here and read out a little bit of a, a, a bio about you is that okay so everyone knows who you are hopefully it's up to date (laughs) it sounds pretty impressive ready ready let's go you're gonna hear all about yourself now alex hermosi is an american entrepreneur investor and philanthropist i love that word he scaled four companies to are you ready a hundred million dollars in cumulative sales across four different industries which is software service e-commerce and brick and mortar in under four years here tell you what that's impressive without taking on any outside capital Uh, he is widely considered an acquisition and monetization expert he also makes mistakes which i love which we're going to talk about more about and candidly shares his painful lessons with aspiring entrepreneurs to help them avoid his pitfalls he donates much of his free time to advancing equal access to education and encouraging entrepreneurship in underprivileged communities which i absolutely and utterly love but here alex here's how i want to start this right So I found out that you were in management consultancy for two years in space cyber intelligence. Is that correct? I was. Yeah, I bet not many people start your interviews with with that little nugget of information. (laughs) No, most people don't even know. Uh, Well, here's here's why. I was really interested in that um, particularly because... Um, you, you've said that, well, I've heard you say um, in some of the research I was doing about you that you used that model and applied that to gyms. So you, apl- you applied what you had learned, you know, in management consultancy and, and then applied that model whenever you started your own gym. Can you talk us through that a little bit, what that was like, and then how you took that model and, and transferred it into an industry which is completely unrelated? Yes. So uh, the management consulting firm that I worked for was a boutique strategy firm. And so we would be essentially hired in to be the smartest people in the room. And that's the words of the partner, not me. I was a 22-year-old who knew nothing at the time. Um, And so she had a specific process. It was really the company's process of becoming smarter than the people who were the experts. And so with information, the hardest thing to do is to find, because there's so much of it now. In the beginning, it was like, you just have to consume all the information that you're done. But now it's sifting through the information so you can find the good stuff that becomes more valuable to skill, which is why consulting continues to grow as a, as a, as a business model, right? And so the process that we would go through is that we would consult experts first 
uh, because experts have already sifted through the vast majority of the data and can point you to the data sources that are going to be the highest quality or the purest, et cetera. And so what we would do was we would talk to, we would first get one introduction to a high, who, who is widely considered the expert in the field. And we would interview this person, try and find as much as we could about the field. And then after that, and these people are experts, they love talking about the thing that they're experts in, right? And so we'd get tons of information. And then from there, we'd say, hey, can you give us five other people you think whose, whose opinions you would value and you think might add more color or depth to this topic? And they would give us five people. And then we'd go talk to those five people, do the same thing. And then after a certain period of time, you start getting the same names over and over again, or the names become more obscure, or more off topic. And at that point, we would kind of conclude the research. Now that would be phase one, um, and this would be like the you know the peon's job, which is what I was doing at the time. Is I would I would I would be the one transcribing and writing down all of this research, and so we'd have four hundred pages, five hundred thousand pages worth of uh, transcriptions, and then from there I would the first step or the second step would be to codify them. So I would highlight them based on topics. Um, so I guess the pre-step before that is knowing all the topics and then highlighting the topics, and then I would reassemble them, and then I would condense them and eliminate because there's tons of duplications a lot of people have the same views on the same things we'd recondense them and then from there we would make a presentation based on now we had just talked to all of these experts so we had our own inclinations of what we thought would be the best course of action and then we present that to a two-star three-star four-star general in like 60 minutes and so that entire project might take six to 12 months or sometimes years to do to answer a simple question which is and a, a good friend of mine dr cashy says the shorter the question the longer the answer um, and so like, what is life? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. Um, and so they might say, you know, we want to find the best way to allocate our, uh, force mix, uh, which would be like satellites, missiles, human people, you know, people, et cetera, against assets so that we can have the, the least amount of overlap. So we can ultimately kill the most people, right? That would be the idea. And so then we would look at all of these different ways of thinking through it. The, the different departments that would be associated and then try to reorganize it into something that was manageable for someone to take actions on. And then we would have, you know, the second, the upsell there would be like, and we can help you do the implementation of this plan that we would, you know, have just outlined for you. And so something like that might cost that 60 minute presentation, we might bill $3 million for um, as a consultancy. And so that process of consulting with experts and going through these steps is First, when I was a gym owner, I didn't know anything about it. And I think that was an advantage because I didn't have any preconceived notions. And so I emailed all these gyms and said, hey, can I just hang out with you? And a lot of people said no, but some people said yes. And I would drive two hours. I'd drive six hours. And I would spend a weekend and I would just ask, well, what do you do after this? And what do you do after this? And a lot of times there was a lot of useless stuff. But every once in a while, I'd get these nuggets. I was like, that's great. And you know, week by week, month by month, I started accumulating these kind of these tactics and these strategies that would work well in the gym business. Um, and I would implement them. And then step by step, my gyms became more and more profitable. From there, um, you know, we started doing flying out. And so speed up three years. Uh, I went from, you know, one location to six. Uh, I started getting people asking me, hey, how can you, can you help me do what you did in your gyms at my gym? And so then I started flying out. This is the moment I met Layla. And this was the idea I pitched her. And I was like, hey, I think I'm going to start this On business. On your first part. date. I heard yeah, that. my first date. I was like, you need to quit your job and you should join me. And she was like, I have a, I just met you on the internet. And I was like, you're going to do it eventually. So just come. And so anyways, I flew out and I launched three gyms with this model. And, uh, and, and we, I called them gym launches because gym turnaround uh, hurts people's egos. So I would go and do gym launches and, but I'd fix their pricing. We'd fix their packaging. We'd fix basically the entire model, how they structured their sessions, how they could get more people in per square foot, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I came back and uh, I don't know if she told you the story, but I had a, 
she picked me up from the airport and I had a backpack and I had no clothes. I literally wore the same t-shirt and shorts every day for 90 days. It was disgusting. Uh, <laughs> I was just I sitting there. Inside and, uh, did you? Uh, oh yeah, I did. Every, I did every trick you could imagine. Um, I would just Febreze and, you know, <laughs> put some alcohol on my face. Yeah, anyways. Um, but I came back and I said, Hey, I know I promised you I was going to take you on a date, which I still hadn't taken her on a date yet. We've been talking for two or three months at this point. I said, you just got to do this one favor for me first. She said, what is it? And I was like, you got to process these payments. And so inside my, my, my backpack, I had a stack of contracts this thick. Each one of them was a $500 bill. And so I said, Hey, help me, help me process this. And so I showed her how to process them. And we processed like $130,000 in like 45 minutes. And she was like, what do you do again? She's like, is it legal? I was like, it's legal. And that's when she quit her job. And then she decided to come out and do the next launch with me. But that kind of consultative process of first figure out the experts, apply the thing, see what works, and then continue that process again. Once I had gym launch, which was where I did gym turnarounds, I then started consulting with businesses, which is a more leverageable model. And at that point, I was sharing everything that I knew at that point. But even then, I then had access to this massive distribution network of information. And that became what I believed was going to be our competitive advantage, is that the bigger I grew my network, the more access to data I would have, and the more I could spin this wheel where we would have the sharpest, best information. If I have 2,000 gyms to pull from, my top 1% is the top 20 gyms that have less than 1% churn. And then I would interview all of them as a panel, take all the notes, compile them, document what the actual processes that were repeat against all of them, because everyone does a million things, but the question is, what are the five things that matter most? And so then we'd look at that, and then I would productize that information, and then I'd redistribute it through the network, and then we'd watch churn drop across the network. And that was the problem. And we would we'd zero in on one thing. Hey, who's doing, who has the highest close rates? Who has the highest show rates? Who's got the best lead gen process? Who's got the best referral process? Who, you know, like each little wheel of growth in the business, we would just apply that process to and then productize it and then distribute the training into the network. And that was what built the continuity on the back end is that they knew that I was always continuing to reinvest in getting more information that I could redistribute to them so that the gyms that I had, and this is my goal, at least with every business that I work with, is that they should do better than I did, not try and reduplicate. Because where I ended is my gyms never did what my top gyms do. I My gym, my top gyms uh, capped at like 600 a year. Mm-hmm. The gyms that we have, we have 63 gyms that, that did over a million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some one, I think they did over two, uh, just a single location as a 2000 square foot, tiny little, you know, facility. And so anyways, they, they learned from where I was, that was, that was baseline. And then from there, how can we improve the model? So that was a long winded answer to your question, but that is the, how I applied the. I love process. it because you've given me so, now I'm like, I'm going to ask this and I'm going to ask this. And now there's so many, so many areas I can go in with, but I love what you said. I'm actually reading a book at the minute by Simon Sinek called, mm-hmm. uh, no, it's not Simon Sinek. It's Matthew Sid. Um, he has written some incredible books and I think it's called The Infinity Game. The Infinity Game, I think it's called. And he talks exactly about that. One of the one of the chapters is about borrowing across industries. Um, and, you know, so many people just get stuck in the industry and the way that it was done. And I think that I, I did a similar thing to you with my industry and in that I... Um, I started studying internet marketing and I studied internet marketing for six years trying to start and grow an internet business. And I learned everything there was to learn about internet marketing before I finally said, screw this, it's not going to work. And I gave it up and I went back, I went and then I trained as a yoga teacher. And then when I started bodybuilding, I realized 
hey, hang on a wee second. There's no nobody in the PT business or in the bot because I'm not even a trained PT. People say to me all the time, are you a personal trainer? I go, thank God I'm not because I might have got stuck in that mindset. But what I did was I took the um, the online marketing model and I applied it to a traditional gym-based model or traditional you know, training model of what PTs were doing. And, and I'm the only one in the industry doing what I'm doing. And that's why my company grew so fast because I borrowed across industries, which it seems is what you did. And that's why I got excited whenever I, I heard about that. But one thing I would say, Alex, is you you seem extremely adept at taking um, content and turning that content into process. And just the way you were uh, explaining the management consultancy role, taking an enormous amount of data, consolidating that data, and actually then, you know, testing the data to to figure out what is the higher level process in it. And it seems that that is what you apply to, to your gyms and to your business model. But what I want to know is, were you always like that? Like you must have been data-driven or data-focused in order, you know, you probably learned a lot of the strategies in those two years of management consultancy, but what do you think happened in your life to kind of shape you into having that kind of brain? Because that doesn't just come from two years post-college. I believe that that is built somewhere in childhood. Was there something that happened or or something you can identify that turned you into a systems thinker, which is what what it appears that you are? Um, so a couple things. First, the, the, the two years of management consulting I didn't uh, really learn any frameworks about business at all. I only learned how to transcribe stuff and do the same process. Um, and so I wouldn't attribute it to that. Um, in terms of uh, like brain and thinking, I think you might find this interesting, but for until I was in my 20, until I turned, basically until I started that job, um, even maybe a year into that job, I actually thought I was very bad at math. And so I used to cheat all the way through high school on every math test and every math homework. Um, I pretty much stopped my formal education in in math at like eighth grade, so like algebra, and like after that, I, I didn't do anything. Um, and so I'm bringing that up because I think that we're really trainable in the amount of beliefs that we have. Around, like our beliefs about our identity and ourselves influence our skills more than anything. And so at one point, I decided I was not going to be bad at math anymore. Uh, and my strategy for doing that was that I was not going to use a calculator anymore. That was my that was the action. And then from that point going forward, I never used a calculator and I made a lot of mistakes, but then I started to get better and better and better. And now I can do lots of math in my head um, that people find cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm only illustrating that story in, in order to say, um, I think that, I think we all have these kind of unlocked skills inside of us and sometimes having these beliefs around them. But in terms of a singular event that happened that that caused me to think in frameworks, um, I don't know. I think the way I, I say it is that like, I just, I'm not smart enough to remember things if I don't have a visual or some, it has to be organized some way or I'll forget it. And so I think I'm really absent-minded. And so I have to make these things so I can remember them. Um, a, a mentor once told me, it's like, you have to make these artifacts. And so if you go through an experience, you have to make an artifact of it. So it crystallizes the knowledge and the experience of something that you can take with you. And so I kind of like that, that, thinking about mm. it. It sounds like a very inductive style of learning. I was similar growing up in terms of I was I'm a very um I'm very auditory digital. I don't know if you've ever done any NLP, but uh, that was all I remember from NLP it was either your yeah. visual, auditory digital or auditory tonal or kinesthetic. Yeah. Um I'm very auditory digital. I'm the kind of person who'll send you an email which will say please see attached. That's yeah, right. if, you, if you give me like a graph or a pie chart, I will shoot you. Like if anyone, <laughs> anyone in my company knows, never present data to me with color or graphs or pie charts. Just give me the black and white data. That's how I how I interpret data. And so, um, 
but I, I had a question somewhere in here, but I think that um, I, whenever I was younger, I detested school, detested school. Like I hated being told what to do. I hated being controlled. I hated being forced to sit in the classroom and learn. I'm a very inductive learner. I'm like, give me the thing and let me break it and take it apart and look at it and figure shit out. And then, and then I'll put it back together again so that I can understand how it works inductively in my body. But did you, like, what kind of a childhood did you have? What, you know, what were your, if you don't mind me asking, I love to figure out what makes people tick and why they, why they are the way they are. Like that's what really kind of interests me on this podcast. So what kind of an upbringing did you have? Was it a traditional upbringing or was there some kind of juicy trauma you can share with us? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that, uh, so, so, you know, what's, what's unfortunate is that my upbringing, I think traditional is now broken, if that makes sense. Uh, I think most people have traumatic childhoods. And I think that's mostly because we are children in an adult world. And so we have the coping mechanisms of children. And so for us to to leave eight years unscathed uh, is unlikely, right? And so um, I don't think that my trauma is any worse than anyone else's because I think everyone met, everyone registers a 10 out of 10 pain the same way. And so whether that means that your father raped you your whole life um, versus uh, I, I knew a, a, a girl who had a very wholesome upbringing and she told me the most traumatic event was when her father slammed his hand on the table and told all the children to shut up. And I was like, that is the worst thing that happened in your childhood. And so, but it was just as traumatic, arguably, and anybody can, can make their counter argument, but I think that we could, I think people can only register a certain amount of pain. And so whatever that, I think what happens is your pain odometer gets calibrated, but a 10 is still a 10. And so I don't say this to, to, to toot any horns, um, with that, you know, context, uh, or pre- preface, my childhood was split. My parents split when I was five. Uh, they had a very ugly nine-year divorce, uh, all arguing over who would have custody over me. I had no siblings. Um, my mother suffered from multiple mental health issues. Uh, she's, you know, she still has gone to the, uh, I think she's, she's battled demons her whole life. Um, and because of that, I think I was, I learned how to talk people off of cliffs. And so I think that was, and, and being able to read someone's emotional state quickly, um, was something that I think I, I was able to learn as a result of that. Um, on the flip side, uh, my father is a, is a patriarchal Middle Eastern man. And, uh, so I have these very stark contrasts like hot, cold water as the majority of my childhood, or at least my formative years. And so I'd have a somewhat, you know, for lack of a better term, batshit crazy mother. Uh, and that would be juxtaposed against a father with extraordinary amounts of uh, discipline and order and structure to everything. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and what's interesting is I actually think I take more after my mother uh, in terms of how I think. Uh, but I think the, the, the order that my, my dad created was positive. That being said, what he was able to create was uh, a hole inside of me that I would never be able to fill with enough success, fame, ambition ever, uh, because it would never be good enough. And now at this point, he's, you know, he continues to reiterate that he is proud of me and all those things. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't a proponent of me quitting my very fancy job and going and starting a gym. I'll tell you that, um, really no one was, but that being said, uh, now he's, he's on the train, but after he told me that he was proud, which took years, um, I realized when he said it, that I didn't care. And that made sense to me because I left without his consent, which means that at that point I'd actually made the decision that I didn't care about what he thought. 
And so although it is nice now, that was when the breaking point happened is when I decided that his happiness was less important than mine. And so, you know, the, you know, formative experiences, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the, the many things that many of us have had in traumatic childhoods, um, I experienced. Um, but I think that ultimately those things were the things that gave me the, um, I'm going to go on a tangent, but I think it'll be worth it. So Dr. Kashi, who's my closest friend, he and I talk all the time about these types of things, but negative visualizations. And so if we can, and this is one of, I think one of the strongest coping mechanisms that exists. And my father was actually the one who equipped me with it. And he said, there's nothing that anyone can do to you that will be worse than what you've already gone through. He's like, just remember that. And so that became a kind of armor for me in terms of life is that no matter what happened, I was like, this is better than what I've been through. You know, this is not, this is not a huge deal. And so it allowed me to minimize some of the stressors in my life or my perception of how, how stressful something was um, as a result of that, which is why, I don't know, I think everything can be spun positive. I mean, good to have a wholesome childhood. I think if you spin it the right way, it can also be great to have a horrible childhood. Um, just tell you how you see it. Yeah, no, I think I think it's true. The reason why I usually ask about people's childhoods, especially successful people, is because I have found consistently in successful people I have um, I have met in person or I've interviewed on the podcast that one of the very consistent things amongst each and every one of them is uh, you can call it a traumatic childhood, but certainly uh, a non-traditional or you know a, a childhood where they suffered some kind of adversity. So children, you know, if they say if they don't suffer adversity in their early years, um, it can be obviously, it can go both ways. It can actually either make you very successful or it can make you um, go the other way and be a a victim or not make a success of your life. Certainly from my own childhood, and I I guess I'm interested because I do a lot of uh, personal work myself, and I know that a lot of the experiences that I had with very traumatic divorce, same as you, going to boarding school at a very young age, having to just figure shit out and realize that there ain't no one coming to save you. It made me extremely resilient. And I guess one of the struggles that I have is like, I have four children. And, you know, I remember reading this great quote once that said something like every successful, I was actually talking about a father, every successful father struggles to give this, his children the same struggles that he had that made him successful. Because you want your children to, you know, you know what it is that made you resilient, successful, not adversity. And you want to give your children as much adversity as possible, but also you have a lot of money. Like we have a private chef at home who cooks all our children's food and a housekeeper who brings them breakfast in bed. And I'm like, no, don't do it, you know? So um, I guess that's why I'm interested. But um, what I want to know is how important, it sounds like you built a lot of, uh, you, you built a lot of self-belief as a child, which you talked about mindset being really important and you built some really good postulates, really good positive postulates, which has helped you to be successful. How important is self-belief do you feel in the people that you work with and you train in the gym owners that you work with or even people you work with in general? <laughs> you probably know what the answer is. Um, <laughs> Very. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, but I kind of want you to break it down from my people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nothing can happen until, I mean, fundamentally, nothing in your your reality, you know, can happen. This is my belief, right? It can happen until it happens in your head, right? And it, and it's, to some degree, there's. I don't see that as like I'm waking up every morning and just visualizing my life. And some people do that. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But at the very least, some people on a subconscious level, when they sign up for a program, whether it's a weight loss program or whether it's a business coaching program or mentorship, they've already made the decision that it's not going to work and they want to 
prove to themselves that yet another thing isn't going to work because they are a special snowflake, right? And so they don't want to lose that feeling of being a special snowflake, that it's not their fault, just the world is stacked against them. Um, and so, you know, relinquishing that belief is very hard for them. And so I think the most useful belief that I've had has been that if someone can, therefore I can too. And I think as soon as you have one person, and I'm sure like Elon Musk, for example, is like, no one has done it and I will be the first. And that's probably an even more useful belief set. But at the very least, most people who are listening to this, depending on where they're at, I think simply jumping from, well, that won't work for me to if one person can, therefore I can too, if I duplicate the actions. It's like Roger Bannister when he broke the four minute mile up until that point, people believed that it wasn't possible. And then within, you know, six months, there were 16 year old girls breaking the four minute mile. You know, yeah. it's once once the belief was was built that it was possible, then that everybody started doing it. Um, uh, there so many, so much good stuff I want to ask you. Um, goal setting. So I think it's a good segue into goal setting. I have heard you say that you always had a goal bigger than just being on the gym floor. Whenever you first started your gyms, you had six gyms. Wasn't that right? Yeah. And you never really just saw yourself as being on the gym floor. That was never the bigger goal for you. How important is goal setting in your life, even currently? Very. <laughs> <laughs> I walked right into that, didn't I? Like, Ask me an intelligent question, Tim, please. <laughs> so, I, so I would... I'd, I would try and delineate this between, you know, emotional goals and, you know, like business goals, right. Or like something that's a tangible goal. So I want to get into shape or I want to do this competition or I want to make this amount of money, whatever that is. Those ones I think are incredibly important and reversing first engineering what it looks like on an hourly or daily basis. Right. And I, I, I walk through this exercise with virtually every business that I consult for, um, there's a couple of equations that are on my YouTube channel that, uh, actually one got posted days called the pie equation, but it's basically the, probably the most used equation that I use for all projections that I do in business. Um, and understanding that equation and how you can project inwards and outwards of where, where you can, you can spot issues in the business. That is what I do. That is my pulse, right? In terms of long-term, I'm probably not as good as it at, at it as like Layla is. Layla's very good at the this is, you know, this is, this is the dream. Um, I've just always wanted more mm -hmm. and it's been less concrete. Hers is like, I want to live in this place and have this type of life and all that kind of stuff. I've been, and it's probably been a deficiency of mine is that I just want to grow almost at all costs. Mm -hmm. um, I just, you know, I, I seek that out because, and sometimes it's to my own detriment because mm -hmm. like, for example, there's four businesses that we built a, you know, multi eight figures or whatever but I probably would have been better suited doing one to nine. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, it was mm -hmm. because I, I thought to myself, this is new and challenging. I'm going to go try and figure this out so I can grow. When I think that for the ultimate goal, the outcome of having a bigger business that's more long lasting, et cetera, I should have stuck with that or maybe even made a tiny pivot rather than chasing the challenge, um, chasing the optimal outcome, which is different. You know what I mean? It's just a process. And that's something that I'm currently working on. Alex, I um, understand you on a level more than you could ever know, because honestly, I just, I feel exactly the same way. Like I, I was, next year we were, we were actually launching um, an apparel company and a supplement company. The Sculpted Vegan is growing like crazy. And I was like, going to launch my business company too. And I, you know, and last night I was lying in bed, 1am, I was texting Layla. Actually, she was like, what the fuck time is it with you? I was like, it's 1am, I can't sleep. I'm lying here planning my, my business next year. And I made the decision today. I was like, I'm not going to do my business. I'm not going to do the business mentor program next year. 
I actually made the decision because I was like, my family sees so little of me as it is, you know, and I'm the mother, right? Not that that means anything really, but you know, the kids and the emotional connection with the mom is very important. And and I made that decision, but I am like, I'm so like you. It's that driven compulsion, isn't it? It's like, you know, people always say to me, what do you want? I'm like, I just want more. I wanted a million dollars. Then I wanted a multi-million dollars. Now I want a billion dollars. And I, it's just like, it's just this absolute and utter, I can't even put words to it, this feeling of needing to have more, needing to be the best, needing to not even be the best, just needing, needing to do things to the to the highest degree or to the furthest you can possibly take it. Like I see you get up at 4 a.m. every day, right? I built my business between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. I had four kids. I was homeschooling. It was the only time I had free. I got up at 4.30 every morning, coffee in hand at the table, 4.45, and I worked until 7 a.m. when they woke up. It was the only time I had, so I fucking did it. So when people say to me, oh, you know, I don't have the time. I'm like, fuck you, you have the time. Get up, get up earlier, you know? Stop making excuses. Do you feel the same way? Is it like, a, like what is it? What is the 4, 4 a.m. for you? Can you break that down for us? Uh, so I think the four, so I do wake up really early um, and I don't want to take full credit for being, you know, an absolute savage. I think part of it is I wake up early. Um, but that's also because I go to bed early. <laughs> um, and I'm just a big believer that most entrepreneurs need quiet time. You need focused energy time for extended periods, uh, periods. And most of us are builders, right? Most of us like creating things. And creating things, if you look at like, create, like compared to like, like Layla works very differently than I do. Uh, she has lots more tasks. She has a lot more meetings and culture and leadership and, all, and a lot of coaching that she does inter- internally. I have almost none. Like almost no one reports to me. I'm just like float around in my little bubble. And as a result of that though, I think optimizing my day around being able to stay in my creative space or my best space as long as possible is kind of what I did. And so if I wake up at four, I can work by 4.30. And from 4.30 until 10, I've already got five and a half, six and a half, I guess, what is that? Five and a half hours of work in really before I have any any conversation with another human. And three days a week, I have nothing, not including weekends. So there's only two days a week that I have anything on my calendar whatsoever. It's not that I don't work. It's just that I'm not talking to people. And so... Um, some people, because I know uh, my first billionaire friend that I met, he was like, oh my God, before I am, that's just so early. And I was like, well, what do you do? He's like, I'm a night owl. And so I think there, I think you can you can do it different ways. Like he he puts his kids to bed and then from nine to three is when he gets his six hours in and then he sleeps and he wakes up at nine or 10. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more important that we have these quiet hours than the actual time of day. But I think for me, at least at the end of the day, I'm cooked. And so that's just how I function. And so I think for many people, I don't see a lot of people doing really good things after six or seven. They're just Netflixing and doing other stuff. And so for me, I, even when I was in college, um, I never I never worked past 9 p.m. ever. Uh, and I would just always rather just wake up early and wake up fresh and then keep studying rather than try and pull an all-nighter. And so that's just how I work. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily for everyone, but that's why I do it. Yeah, no, because I remember you saying... Um in a in a previous interview that I had watched, you'd said, you know, the first discipline people need to learn is how to control their own body. And I was yeah. like, oh, I love this guy because it's what I teach constantly in the Sculpted Vegan. I'm like, literally, you know, show up, do the work, have discipline, build your inner word. If you can't trust your inner word, truly, if you can't trust that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it, you have nothing. If you don't have your inner word, you have nothing. 
Nothing. You need to build control, self-control, self-discipline. You need to show up when you say you're going to show up and get the work done. Do you teach that inside your program? Is that something that you think that others can learn later in life? Or do you have like strategies for, okay, hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to backpedal. I'm going to say, cause I know I do want to go into the business a little bit and what it is that you do and what it is that you teach. Cause I want to give you a bit of PR as well. But I guess what I find in my business, and especially this is part of the reason why I've decided not to work with entrepreneurs next year specifically, is because what I see holds people back a lot is, is the emotional intelligence. I can give people strategies all fucking day, but let me tell you something. If you don't have the emotional strength to do what you know you should do, you're falling at the first hurdle. You're never going to get past it. And do you find that in your business? Do you find that it's a hurdle, like people lacking discipline and courage? An emotional no. knowledge stops them from, and, and if yes, how do you help them get over that? So yes, you know, you just give uh, I think, I think the, the way to advance people is to break their beliefs and the belief breaking process. The good news about that for anyone who's listening is that that is very well documented. And so the belief breaking process typically revolves around stories um, that you can tell that rewrites or overwrites someone's existing belief set. And so if we can choreograph an experience that is going to get someone to be able to rewrite their internal story, then they will have a core breakthrough. And then after that point, their lens on the world will change around this specific topic. And so I'm a big believer that selling properly, uh, not only just on the initial sale, but continuously throughout, um, is key to getting people to be successful, independent of what type of coaching you do, right? And so I think constantly, every single implementation or intervention that, you know, like, for example, if I was going to, uh, so I actually did a, a sleep challenge in our, in our community, right. And for anyone who's listening, um, you know, I, I heard a, I heard a mentor once say, if you can't control what time you go to bed and wake up every day, how do you expect to accomplish anything? Great. How do you, how do you expect to accomplish anything? Great. Like you can't even control what time you go to bed and what time you wake up. I had somebody message me yesterday and they said, how do you wake up so early? I said, I set an alarm. <laughs> How do you get how do you get out of bed? How do you not how do you not snooze the alarm? I just don't. Right. I just I, like I like I don't too. I just don't really it's not I like and I don't even think about that as a, like that hasn't even been a choice it, like it like I it couldn't even really comprehend the question because it's just like I, I it's time to get up. And it's also because I probably look forward to what I'm doing so I'm excited to start working, right? right? right. Um, but the sleep challenge that I did, I had to frame it. The first 45 minutes of the presentation was was breaking beliefs around why they couldn't do it and why that belief is false. Before I said, this is what we're going to be doing as your action steps. I think too often, you know, a lot of the content that exists is just like, here's five steps to increase your sleeping, right? But people are like, neat. And then they just go about the day. But if I tell you before we start that uh, I start with, do you know the decisions that you make are going to 100% dictate how your life goes? is 100% based on the decisions. Underneath of that, how do you think you can directly impact how, how the quality of your decisions? Let me tell you a story. So when I was in college, I had this really complex math problem that I had to solve. And I was staring at this thing for two hours. And I was like, I tried every way. I was like, I cannot figure this thing out. And then I went to bed and I woke up and I looked at the problem and I solved it in five minutes. And it was because I had fresh eyes and I was well-rested. And so, so many of us, could immediately impact the well-being in our lives, our ability to solve problems, our ability to handle stress, our ability to be good husbands, our testosterone levels, uh, the amount of fat that we have, all of these things as a result of one habit, which instead of telling people when to wake up, I tell them when to go to bed. Because waking up, you'll be exhausted. But if I can get you to go to bed at the same time, 
you'll you will eventually wake up after full night's sleep just early. You're like, how do you you must not sleep much? I was like, I go to bed at 8:30. I wake up at 4:30. It's eight hours of sleep. I mean, I don't know why that's you know what I mean. Like it's fine. <laughs> and sometimes I wake up at 3:30 because I wake uh, after seven hours. Like it's okay. So, anyways, to 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 respond to your question, yes, I do think that it's the biggest issue. The way to solve it, I think, is telling stories that break beliefs. And then on top of that, putting it in a community where people start in cohorts, where someone starts at the same time as someone else, and they can see someone else be successful. And then immediately they think, well, shoot, this guy started at the same time as me. Because it's something different to see someone in the past who's been successful. But if someone starts at the same time as you, I'm sure you have entrepreneurs who were in groups of yours, or you, you started in the journey at the same time. And if you saw one of them move faster or bigger, and you probably can remember some time, you had this draw where all of a sudden you had envy, which I think is a healthy emotion, contrary to what everyone thinks. You had this envy of, I want what they have. And I think if you can do that, you can pull people out of the hole of inaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yes, I, I believe so. And I also, I think as well, it's, it comes down to being at cause, under, understanding yourself well enough. I've heard you talk about that as well. You see, I did do my research on you, which actually is very unlike me, I have to be honest. But like I said, whenever I started watching you, I was like, shit, this guy's the smartest person I know. So I'm going to come up with some really fucking intelligent questions. And I think I'm failing miserably here, but that's what it is. So I don't really care. You're like, ask me some strategy or let me like tell you how brilliant I am. Stop asking me why I get up so early. But um, I'm always interested. I guess in in what makes people tick, you know. And I've heard you talk a lot about you know culture and management, and about um, about not being unethical and pe- being focused on creating value. And these are very very these are not values that everybody has, Alex. You know, if people do not understand uh, the emotional, they don't understand their own emotional state, first of all. They don't really understand how they how they interact with the world and their responsibility in it, you know? And it takes a, and when you truly are at cause, you understand your emotions, you understand how you affect other people and the world, and then you can take that into a macro scale, you can suddenly broaden your view and you can start to work towards something which is a little bit bigger than, than what you currently have. And I know that you do a lot of um, philanthropy work or that you actually dedicate a lot of your free time to, you know, equal access in education and and underprivileged communities. What is the driver behind that? Like where, what's the driver behind that for you? Well, I believe in entrepreneurship. And I think it's the only thing that is, you know, a source of positive change in the world. I don't think the government's going to save us. So because of that, um, Information is, I think, the only thing that can set people free and learning skills. And so the good thing is that the entire school system is woefully inadequate, pretty much in every country, um, especially when it comes to teaching entrepreneurship. Um, and that that personality type in general, and I don't think it's necessarily, I'm not nature versus nurture on that. I think some people, like there's so many different flavors of entrepreneurs that I've met, I'm sure like you have, that really anyone can do it um, if they choose to, right? But I think the information that's out there is really uh, not well organized. And if I can if I can cut through that and give people a way to find out how they can fish for themselves, that's something that's very fulfilling for me. I had a, a teacher who stayed with me after school when I was 15 years old. And he worked out with me two hours a day. And because of that, um, and I remember when he when he when he called me out, he saw me in the hallway. He's like, "Hey, boy!" And I was like, "You know, I went to an all guy school." So I was like, uh, "What?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, "You lift weights?" And I was like, "No." He's like, "You want to?" And I was like, "I don't know how." And he said, "Come with me after school. I'll show you." And so um, he he worked out with me you know, for two hours a day and he never charged me anything and never asked for anything. Um, in, in retrospect, it was kind of almost weird. When you think about it. <laughs> um, 
But he did that for a year and he ended up getting fired for spending too much time with kids after school. Weird. Um, but as a result of one guy basically just really over-investing in me for no actual reason besides his own fulfillment or whatever, um, that set me on a course of, you know, personal development and who would have, maybe I would have continued, I would, maybe would have found a different teacher at a different time. It's very possible. But as far as I'm concerned, this is what happened. And so if I can help facilitate that for other people, then I will do that. Um, I, I do think that a lot of us, as much as, you know, I think at different seasons in my life, if you'd ask me questions, I'd have different answers. Um, but I can, I remember I used to get really angry when I would see billionaires say like, I'm just lucky because I was like, that's such horseshit. Of course you're not lucky. But I feel like the further along I've gotten, I do feel like there is a lot more luck to it than I, when I was kind of earlier on, because I was like, you just got to get punched in the face. You got to keep fucking going, you know, do the boring work. And like that, we still, we still espouse those values because also the people in my community are at a different point. But when I look at the macro scale of like, some people are just not born with a high IQ. Mm. Mm-hmm. Some people are born in, in in such traumatic experiences, and some people might have a genetic predisposition to not being able to handle stressors in a certain way. And that childhood I had, maybe with a different gene set, would have just been traumatic and just crippled me, which is entirely possible. And so when you said earlier, um, I find that very, a lot of hyper-successful people had traumatic childhoods. I think a lot of people have traumatic childhoods, and a certain percentage of people become successful. Mm-hmm. That's just my my belief. If you look at the Bulgarian, so to bring this as a fitness example, uh, the Bulgarian weightlifting method, uh, they basically took the entire country and just put everyone in an un, in an unbelievably high volume method that pretty much breaks everyone. But if you do not break, you become a champion. And I think that I think life is far more similar to that. And then we say, Johnny, how is it that you can that you can handle so much volume, right? And he's like, Well, I mean, I work out three times a day, and people are like, Man, this guy just unbelievable. But it's like. I think a lot of people are just fucked for lack of a better term. And so I think because of that, um, I think to whom much is given much is expected. And so I feel like I've been given a lot, um, in many ways with born in the United States automatically, I'm, you know, 300 million out of, out of eight, eight billion or whatever number it is now. Right. I'm already in the top, whatever, just for being born in the United States. Besides that, I was born to, I didn't have financial hardships growing up. If I didn't have to worry about food, um, you know, basic thing. I didn't have to worry about that. Um, now another X percent above that. And so like, if I look at the amount of things that happen to me, there are so many things that were in my direction. Now, sure. I absolutely did have to work hard. I absolutely did need to be able to handle failure and getting punched in the face and getting rejected. Um, and I did have to study and work at skills and, and work on my own confidence, my own beliefs and the inner, inner word, like you said, keeping my own promises to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I think that the, the overarching thing is that that one statement is to whom much is given and much is expected. And so if I can give back even a percentage of what I've been given through the world, the universe, luck, um, I will. Do you think it's, um, you see, I have never really, I suppose, considered it as being luck and a, a lot, I guess, to do with opportunity as well. Like I'm a, I'm a risk taker. I see opportunities and I see them and I act on instinct and I take them and I move fast when I see an opportunity. And, and I'm willing to take that risk because I'm willing to fail. You know, I'm willing to like if it all, you know, and I, I did I did a training last week in my in my business group and I said to them, guys, here's the thing. I said, I see everything is an experiment and everything is a bit of fun because if it all went away tomorrow and I had to move with my husband and kids into a council house, which I don't know whether you have those over here, what over in America, whatever you would call them, like a state owned, you yeah. know, tiny little house and work in McDonald's, I would. 
I would, and I would claw my way back up again. So I'm not afraid to lose what I have because, you know, so then everything just becomes an, you know, just becomes an experiment. And so luck, I guess, you know, I'm trying on what you said. I, I think, yes, we are definitely fortunate to, you know, I didn't struggle financially, even though I had a traumatic childhood. I went to a private boarding school for fuck's sake. I had a great education, you know, where was my mother there to kiss me whenever I fell and hurt myself? No, but like, you know, I had a, <laughs> I had a pretty, I had a pretty good childhood as well. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but I think, I think that a lot of people are presented with opportunities, but I do believe that seeing those opportunities and taking them is a massive, um, is a massive part of your success. Like you, you basically roped your wife into going into business with you on the first date. I mean, yeah, tell totally. us about that. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about Layla and your relationship because we have a lot of female listeners here, obviously, and they did hear Layla last week. And oh my god, the feedback I got was amazing. So now they're happy to hear the <laughs> other side of it. <laughs> She's the best. Can I have one caveat to the last thing before we close the the loop? One hundred percent. So when it comes to luck, and I and I don't want to anger the the on the on the way entrepreneurs that are like, of course you're not fucking lucky. You worked really hard. Um, I think the, the, the wrinkle to that is that it doesn't matter who you are. You don't know what cards you were dealt. Mm -hmm. And so the actions still remain the same. And so whether or not it's like saying you've got, uh, I'll give a better analogy to, to make sense of it in a fitness analogy, because it's easy for me. Um, if you have really good genetics for weightlifting versus not having good genetics for weightlifting, your genetics will matter, but you also have no idea what your genetics are until you start lifting. And the only way to become a champion either way is by lifting a lot and doing it over and over again for a long period of time. And so, and the, the, the additional corollary to that is that anybody who has talent compared to someone who has work ethic, they've already proven this a zillion times. The, the outcome of somebody who works, let's say an hour a day on working on their piano skills versus somebody who's naturally has an ear for music. If you compare those two people in a year, the person who worked is already better. You compare those people in 10 years and you only hear about how that 10 year person has so much natural talent. Mm -hmm. And so I had, when I was growing up, very bad beliefs about my genetics with lifting. I didn't think I had good genetics. I thought I had skinny guy genetics. I was like, I can't, I can't get bigger. And that's okay. I was like, I had ex accepted that. And then at one point, just like the math, I was like, what if I have freak genetics? What if I'm a mutant? What if every time I touch the weight, I grow? And all of a sudden I started believing that and choosing to act as though that was my genetic belief set. And I added another 30 pounds to my frame. Mm. And it happened over another five years after I had plateaued. I'd already been competing at that point. So it wasn't like I was a new trainee. I'd already been training for almost a decade at that point. And so a decade into my training, I had what most people would consider a finished body, right? But then I still was able to add another 30 pounds because that was a belief. And so as much as I say now, there is a component of luck. I think there is. But in no way is it useful for you to think about it because it doesn't concern you because the cards were already dealt. So you just have to play them. Yeah. And you won't even... So anyway, know. I just wanted to yeah, just love it. wrap that last piece in. It's perfect. And you won't even know, as you say, what you're capable of unless you actually do it, unless you actually start working towards it. You know, you, you've only got a hypothesis in the beginning, but you have to test the hypothesis with data and then see, does it actually... I had a girl who uh, asked me about her, her job. And she said, I, I don't know if this career is going to be useful for me. I'm, I want to make more money. And I was like, have you considered selling? And she said, um, well, I'm not good at sales. And I said, well, how many hours of sales training have you gone through? She's like, well, none. And I was like, well, then why would it be reasonable for you to be good at sales? You've never even done it. You've never even practiced it. Why would you be good? She's like, well, I haven't really thought about it like that. I was like, of course you're fucking horrible. Why would you be good? 
right? And so I think of a lot of people, like what I would give to newer entrepreneurs is do enough work that it would be unreasonable for you to suck. It would be unreasonable. If you do, for example, like one of the big, for anybody who's in business, I say, do a, it's called a rule of 100. That's what I call it. So you either do 100 reach outs a day or you spend $100 a day on advertising and you do that every day until you make money. And I guarantee you, if you do that rule of 100 every day for a year, you will not know what to do with the amount of business. The problem is you now know what to do. Why aren't you fucking doing it? Because of the emotional shit that Kim was talking about earlier. So anyway, and then you got to figure that out, right? Yeah. But the, the tactics are easy. It's the doing them that's hard. Yeah. I, but you see, that's the most frustrating thing for me whenever, and I love what you're saying. And I guess that that, you know, we do see it in bodybuilding a lot because, you know, we sold 30,000 programs this year. And so and out of the 30,000 programs that we sold, we probably had 10% of people <laughs> who, who actually followed through and got the results. You see, my 18-month program, okay, my, I have I developed a program uh, which was, which is an 18-month sculpt and shred. They build for 12 months and then they sculpt their body for six months. And we sold, I think in the first year, we sold maybe 1,200 of those, right? 1,200 programs. And uh, someone said to me, oh my God, your 18-month program, it's so amazing. Like, have you got some incredible transformations? I said, no. And they were like, why not? And I said, because we have, I said, do you want to know how many people have finished the 18-month program? This was after like 24 months or something. Do you want to know how many people have finished it? And they were like, how many? I was like, two. They were like, two? I was like, two people have actually finished the program. Don't get me wrong. Loads of people are 12 months in. Loads of people got to nine months, had to take a break. Loads of people got halfway through, three quarters of the way through, a quarter of the way through. They're almost there. The um, the only there were, were two people who actually shredded to athlete style, you know, bodies and did photo shoots and looked like a stage athlete at the end of it. Now we have many, many, many more now because we're three years down the line. But it's like the same as the four-week shred. We ran a competition. We had 3,000 people join the four-week shred and we had two... 102 people or something enter out of 3,000 actually enter the competition. They actually finished. It's, yeah. it's shocking. People just don't finish. And you're right. It's the emotional component is the missing component. And I guess this is um, this is the bit that I'm kind of, this is where I'm feeling frustrated at the minute with the people, with the amount of people that I have on my network. And I'm sure you find it as well. You know, you do you not, do you not get frustrated, Alex? Do you not get like, you just want to shake them and go, just do the fucking work. <laughs> or are you much more forgiving than me? <laughs> an understanding um i think it's it's taken some time to get to get through that for me because there was definitely a long period of time where i would i used up a lot of my emotional energy trying to it's it's the difference between being a savior and being a guide and i think that ultimately like you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink i can really lead you to like in, in the matrix i can bring you to the door but you have to walk through it and so i think it's being able to think like that i think has helped me honestly gain a little bit of emotional distance which i think especially for you you know you have so much reach and you have so many people that i think it's required in order to maintain your honestly your mental sanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it is it's true um oh my god i can't believe we've been talking for nearly an hour and i do really want to know because I, I love her so much i do want to know about yeah. your wife i want you to talk about her i want to hear all your projections <laughs> about her to be honest so uh, I was so interested to meet you just because she is like one of my favorite people now after such a short space of time um and I was I was very curious to to meet you um to find out where you just as fabulous and you are but you like you literally met her online and then you were like let's go into business together on your first date and how long after till you got married Uh, I think 11 months oh wow so quick yeah yeah and then um but what the one of the funnier parts of the story was, uh, you know, we got married, but I asked her to marry me seven days or eight days or six. It was either six, seven or eight days before we got married. 
So we never really got engaged. I just said, hey, I think we should get married. That was my actual proposal. I said, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think it makes too much sense for us not to be married. That was my actual proposal. You're so romantic. Um, and then I just said, like, do you agree? <laughs> that was my proposal. And she was like, I agree. And I was like, okay, well, uh, I guess you need to get a ring then. And she was like, yeah. And so we got in the car and went to the store, bought a ring, came back 45 minutes later. And I was like, what else do we need to do? I guess we, you know, we should go uh, get a get a church. So I called a, a local church up and I was like, "Hey, are you guys free on Wednesday night?" I said, "Okay, sure." And I said, "You need to stay after the the sermon. We'll see you in the back." I said, "Okay," uh, and then we went and we got married at the end. We didn't have either of our parents there. Uh, we didn't tell anyone. We had one pair of two friends who were there who were local, and that was uh, that was our. We called our parents later to tell them that we. We're like, hey, we got engaged. And I'm like, that's amazing. And we're like, and we got married. <laughs> I love it. Do you not find that too many women are just too fucking emotional? They're just like, I want the fairy tale and the big wedding. And I just find women in general, women in general frustrate me, which I think, listen to all the women listening to this. I love you all, but you know, I have no BS attitude. It's one thing people always say about me. I'm always going to tell it like it is. And I, I love women and I have, there's nothing wrong with wanting the the white horse and the knight and the shining armor and the sword and the big white dress and the fairy tale wedding. It's just not something that I wanted. But I think that women in general are too fucking hung up on the, you know, the fairy tale, which then comes crashing down. And the reality is very, very different. And, um, and I love the story that you, <laughs> I love that story. And did, or, do you believe in soulmates? Do you believe in like, you know, meant to be like, or no, you, know, you just, you, matter, <laughs> you were like, you're my kind of girl. Let's do it. I think you need aligned mission and aligned values. And I oh think, my God, I agree. If you, I think, I mean, this is all right. I, I feel very passionate about this. So I think most people do a horrible job picking their mates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if people looked at them as life partners, um, they would do much better. And at least in my experience, and this is, I'm, I'm telling you right now, 99% of people are not doing this and I'm not saying that you made the wrong call. I'm just, I'm, I'll give you my perspective. Um, I had many, many relationships as did Layla before we met each other that were very explosive romance, emotion, ups and downs and crazy chemistry and all that stuff. And we had all that. And when Layla and I met on our first date that lasted four hours, we didn't have any romantic connection whatsoever. In fact, on our second date, Layla was like, I don't really get any sexual vibes from you. And then I just belly laughed, right? Because I'd never heard that from a single one in my entire life. And, um, but the, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm telling this story to illustrate the point, which is like, we were just like, she was interested in me. Mm-hmm. And I found her interesting. Mm-hmm. We had really similar views. We had very similar upbringing. So I had a Middle Eastern father, white crazy mother. She had a Middle Eastern father, white crazy mother. We both left where we were to go to California to pursue fitness at the same age, at the same time. We both swipe right, you know what I mean? <laughs> and we both, we, we both followed a very similar path. And so as a result of that, we both wanted similar things out of life and we wanted to get there, which is the values in a similar way. And so I think, uh, and all the research that we did, um, you look at, look at like arranged marriages, right? The success rate of, or the, the divorce rate in arranged marriage is significantly lower than voluntary marriages. Now you can make arguments of like, there's parental pressures and other things like that, but it's a, it's an overwhelming percentage more. And I've met multiple people who uh, are in arranged marriages who are from Indian because my stepmother is Indian um, and have phenomenal marriages. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from low expectations, high commitment. Mm-hmm. And everyone in culture has the reverse, which is a hundred percent expectations, zero commitment. And they also want the other person to satisfy every human need they have, which is impossible. And so if 
we could approach this, I think it's just as a collective, if everyone approached their mate as, this is where I want to go. This is how we'd like to get there. Would you like to get go on this journey with me? And we will we will learn to love each other along the way. I would say like right now I love Layla more than I did. And I feel like people say that, but like I, I we didn't like each other that much. And when we got married, we were not in love. So that's why that proposal was that way is because like, I didn't have like any horse and fairy thoughts because I was like, this makes sense. Let's come to an agreement. Do you like, do you feel like this exchange is, is valuable for both of us? And do you think that this could, that we could both become more valuable assets together? And she agreed. And so that was kind of the foundation of our relationship. But by doing that, our relationship has been founded a lot on rational thinking. And so, you know, because of that, we have very low volatility in our relationship. We've been in one fight. And it's like a fight, uh, you know, where it was literally us disagreeing on what to do with the direction of one of the companies. Like that was the actual, that was the fight. And it was over within 30 minutes. Um, and it wasn't yelling. It was just like, I strongly disagree with this position. I don't see, I don't see how this aligns with our mission. Right. And so it was, but the thing is, is when we have these things that we can compare it to, this is what we said our mission was, this is what we said our values are. Then we have this third party that we can compare based on our original agreement of how we were going to enter this relationship, how we're going to be husband and wife together. And so we have learned to love one another uh, because we are similar. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the, 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 the chemistry comes from friction, right? Become totally being opposite to one another. You're like, I just hate you, but I love it, right? There's that feeling. But that's a feeling. And then you realize six months later, you're like, I actually just fucking hate you, right? <laughs> right? Like you actually believe everything that's opposite to what I believe. And you don't want to do in life what I want to do. And you don't want to get there the way I want to get there. And then people just are in these relationships that they're stuck. And then they make the commitment because they're like, I guess that's what I should do now. And then they just don't know what to do. I'm not saying you can't salvage a marriage, but I think there needs to be a new agreement that has to be entered of like, this is what we would like to do. And if the thing is, is they're not aligned, I'm not pro-divorce because I am pro-high commitment. But unless you can come to an agreement of what you want life to look like, then you're literally going to be both going in other directions. So I could talk to you more about relationships. No, it's wonderful. I love hearing. You have to know when to quit. I think that's, you know, that's the thing about divorce. I I am pro-commitment as well, but you also have to know when to quit, you know? You have to know when it's not working. Ryan and I are the same. We met, actually, (laughs) ours was slightly different. We met on a Friday. Uh, We met on a Tuesday. We went for lunch on the Saturday. I went for dinner at his house on the Friday, and I was pregnant uh, two weeks later. So we celebrated 11 months together with an eight-week-old baby on a mortgage. <laughs> so, not even joking. It was like so fast. And then we had four kids in five years. So it happened really quickly. But you're right about the core values. It's so important. But I think though that you're, what you have that many people lack, especially men, and I don't want to be hard on males, but generally men are not as emotionally aware as you are. Um, men, men exist, I find, very much on the thought realm and women are much more in the emotional realm. And so I think that because you're so self-aware and because you evaluate and because you're very process-oriented, you're able to evaluate um, from a, not from an unemotional state, but from an unemotional state and actually see, you know, and, and are your core values the same? And, but that, that, the, that comes from knowing yourself as well, Alex, you know, knowing yourself. Well, many people just don't know themselves as well as you know yourself. I just want to add a piece of color to this that might provide value. I think a lot of people don't know what words mean. And what I mean by that is a lot of people don't know how to name emotions. Mm -hmm. And so, especially men, but I mean, I think it goes for, I think it goes both ways, but like, for example, I'm frustrated. Well, that could mean, mean a, a, a lot of things, right? It could be, I feel like an injustice was done to me. It could feel like I am disrespected. 
I could feel I, I I could feel embarrassed. I could feel shame over something that I did. I could feel envy. I could feel jealousy. Do people know the difference between envy and jealousy? They are different. And if you can name the emotion, I think a lot of times just literally naming it gives you control over it and then it stops controlling you. And then you can assess, is the reason that I'm feeling this emotion justified? And then all of a sudden, it, like you can pull outside of yourself and look at it. And I think if, if people just spend time on learning the words and what it means, then they would probably have a lot easier time managing through life. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And also what I would love to put on this is like this, we could have gone this podcast and I'm going to, I'm going to let you go soon. I promise. But we could have, you know, I could have gone with this podcast in a, in, you know, drawing on all of your expertise and building companies and and doing all that, which is kind of what I've heard you speak a lot of. But I guess what I always try and teach and what I really wanted to see, could I find in you, which and you would be there, of course, um, is, you know, what, what you're talking about effectively is, is, becoming, um, as you say, being able to to label an emotion and being able to label an emotion, be able to talk about it, being able to separate yourself from what you're feeling and then being able to identify that and then have a conversation around that, that is actually effectively sales, right? That's knowing how to how to sell yourself. Like my husband and I were having this chat the other day. There was It was something about money. There was, uh, he was getting a chunk of money from his company and he wanted to put it into pension. And I said, well, actually, I prefer that money to go here. And, and he was like, no, no, no. Well, hang on. We agreed that such and such. And I said, but why? And we started to get into a bit of a right wrong about it. And I was like, hang on, hang on, stop, stop stop. I said, let's pull back. I said, we're talking about different things. I said, let me explain to you why I'm feeling this way. I feel I've worked really hard all year and I'm feeling exhausted. I need the break. And so I was able to say emotionally, I actually want to feel supported by you emotionally with this, with this money. And he was like, oh, okay, well that makes total sense. For, for me, that doesn't make sense to me because for me, the sense and saving the tax, whatever, we were talking about two completely different things. I was saying, will you support me emotionally? And he was saying, I just want to make financial sense. So we weren't even talking about the same thing. But because we were able to go out of content and into process and actually realize where we were discussing, I, I, I heard what he wanted, he heard what I wanted, and we came to a decision like that. But be, having the ability to do that is not many people have it. But when you have it, Alex, and this is where I want to take it back into business, then I just want you to tell us quickly before we go about gym launch. But I this is having, you're like so quick, there's so much we could talk about. Um, having that ability makes you a good salesperson. It makes you a good business person. It makes you someone who shows up in the gym, who can identify your process, identify your limitations, can can overcome them and make better decisions. Simply being aware, simply being aware of you, your emotions, your physical body, your emotional body, and how that affects the world, your place in the world, is simply life-changing. And that, I think, is what separates an entrepreneur from, or someone like you, um, like a, a highly, highly successful entrepreneur from a regular person. I believe that it actually all starts with us. And once you figure that shit out, everything else flows. Your relationships, your kids, if you have them, your work life, your bodybuilding, your goal setting, your nutrition. You have to figure yourself out first. Would you agree? You're yes. Like, yes. Yes, Kim. <laughs> I agree. I concur. <laughs> Alex, uh, so much good stuff here. Before we go, I want you to give a shout out because we have a lot of gym owners listening to this. And I was, um, and I know you don't just have gym launch. You have several companies, Prestige Labs and Alan. Is that? Yep. Ask Alan. Yep. So, but I was telling my own trainer, Mark Getty, about you and Layla whenever I first met you. I was telling about Layla and he was like, 
and he owns a gym and he was like what is it they do and what's this about gyms and who's this winner and, and he was like he didn't he wasn't interested in you at all he just wanted to hear about gym lunch so because <laughs> we do have, honestly I'm, I'm not even joking because we do have a lot of uh, personal trainers and, and gym owners and different things you know uh, who listen to this podcast tell us a little bit more you know go, tell us a little bit more about what you do give, give it a shout out <laughs> So uh, for gyms specifically, uh, we help them solve three main problems. The first is that they can't acquire customers profitably. And so what that means is they have a budget on marketing. Some of them don't even have a budget, but they try and spend. And once they spend it, that means it's gone. If you can market and acquire customers properly the right way, then you can have a negative acquisition cost, which is just fancy speak for making more money, getting a customer than it costs you to get them. Which means if I were to send $1,000, sorry, spend $100 on advertising, then a customer would come preloaded with $400 in their pocket. And then I could take $100 to cover the cost of them, take another 100 to get another customer and still have 200 to go put in my pocket. And by doing that, I can continue to spin. And so what that does is it allows somebody who's capital constrained, aka does not have a lot of money, to be able to acquire customers ad infinitum, basically as many as they want. And what that does is it removes the bottleneck of getting new customers as a problem for the facility, which then introduces the second problem, which is that once they remove the bottleneck of acquisition of their facility, they realize that they're full capacity and yet their bank account is empty because they do not have a good pricing model and their fulfillment model is broken. And so we help them price package their services in a way that will maximize the profit of the facility and ultimately make them much more durable. The third piece is that once you have customers that you're acquiring profitably and you are making good money on them because you're priced appropriately, people leave, retention, you know, churn happens. And so what are the, what are the processes that are repeatable, that are not personality driven, meaning you don't have to be the one doing it, that drive people to pay and stay in the long term? Right? And so we've identified from the process that I laid out in the very beginning, what the top 1% of gym owners do for each of those things. And we've duplicated those things across you know, thousands of gyms now. So we know that the processes work. And so fundamentally, that is what we do with gyms. And so we have, you know, when someone comes on, the first thing we do is we generate cash flow immediately from free traffic sources. And that gives them usually a ten dollars to $20,000 injection. From there, we then do what we call an internal play, which is then we add retail products to their to their services, which is Prestige Labs, our supplement company, which we formulated just for gyms. So they're price protected against Amazon and all that stuff. And it provides them more margin and commissions than any other company. So we actually just crossed $10 million paid out. So I've paid $10,000 and $10 million in commissions um, to the gym community, which is kind of cool. Uh, just to show you that the sales process works. <laughs> we paid out $10 million uh, in commissions to this. And so the next thing we do is we, we basically add more value to the clients without adding more sessions, right? We maximize, we take another, we solve another problem for our clients without needing more square footage. And so that becomes another revenue and profit driver for the facility. And then after that, now they have cash flow, they have a second revenue stream that didn't require any overhead. Then we take that cash and we invest in growth. And that's the process that I did with gyms. And I, you know, I did 33 gym turnarounds before I started packaging up that process. Um, so it was me flying out and doing this in person. And so we know the process and what it looks like. And so we just take gyms through that. We've done 4,000 in the last four years. Um, I can I can say with a lot of confidence, I don't think anyone's close to us. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm just saying as a matter of fact, um, and I mean, the fact that we're 10 times bigger than anyone else in the space. And I know the other guys in the space. I help them because I'd rather them just do a good job. Um, and most of them just reduplicate our content, which is fine. And honestly, I don't, I'm at a point where I don't care. I'd rather just have gym money. Yeah. And so that is more, that is what we do. I love it. And it's gymlaunch.com. That's where they can. And if someone wants to find out more about it, they can go to gymlaunch.com and they can actually apply. I'll give, to it you. URL. I'll give a different URL. 
Okay. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, I'll we don't have it in the show notes, so just shout it out. Okay, perfect. So you get if you like this type of stuff, if you're a podcast person, go to alexspodcast.com. Um, and it'll reroute you to all of the stuff that we that we do in terms of and there ours are really short 10, 10 minutes or so of like here's how you downsell here's how you do an assume close here's you know they're very tactical uh, the other thing you can do is you can go to alexsbook.com um, and that'll route you to our book it's free you can cover it it's shipping handles in nine bucks um, and it's everything that we've learned from thirty five hundred plus facilities at the time when I wrote it of turnarounds, everything from acquisition all the way to managing and what adds to hire for salespeople. Everything is in that book. Um, you can use it on your own. Um, and yeah, my gift to you. I love it. I love it. I'm going to go and check it out myself. Actually, I might get a few, <laughs> a few tips for growing my business next year. Alex Hormozzi, um, this was absolutely awesome. I apologize for uh, keeping you so long, but dear God, this was uh, so much fun. And I could have talked to you for another 30 minutes at least, but uh, I'm not going to bend your ear any longer. I'm Irish, you see, because we love we love just to have a good old chin wag. Um, a chin wag, that's what it's called, a good old chin wag. <laughs> I say things like this and people are like, I don't even understand what that means. But anyway. Anyway, that's yeah, it's an Irish for uh, Irish for a good old chat. Um, Alex, where else can we find you on Instagram as well? Yeah, at Hormozy, just my last name. Hormozy, yeah. And yeah, Leila actually as well introduced me to the lovely JP Sears recently. He's coming on the podcast in January, and I saw he tagged you this morning. Actually, you you and he are friends. Yeah, we're homies. He's a good guy, like him. And I was dying to find out your views about governments and schooling and coronavirus and all that. But you know what? We got into all the emotional stuff. Maybe we'll have to do another one and I can let you loose because I have a lot of very strong views on those things too, let me tell you, which I'm not afraid to talk about. (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for being here. Um, We'll list everything that Alex talked about in the show notes, guys. And you can go and check out his podcast and check out his book and get loads and loads and loads of free information. And um, Alex, I will catch up with you soon. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Now, wasn't he just a diamond? Wasn't he like a a gem in here? Tell you what, he's not bad to look at either. (laughs) Wouldn't kick him out of bed if he farted. Um, No, but truly, like, that's a a terrible sexist thing to say. But let me tell you, a man with brains and beauty and buff, like, you should see this guy's biceps. I'm telling you, he like has the whole package. So uh, ripped and rich. Um, so while I'm over here like whew, fanning myself after interviewing Mr. Hormozzi, um, guys just want to uh, just want to say I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed it, it was fantastic we're definitely going to have Alex and Leila back on the podcast might even have them back on the podcast together here, here might try and persuade Ryan to come here and we'll do some kind of like relationship podcast <laughs> wouldn't that be fun um, sure Alex is maybe listening to this going no that is never going to happen just so you know but anyway um, guys listen thank you so much for listening don't forget to leave me a review in the podcast if you want to win a sculpted vegan program all you got to do is leave a review send me a screenshot on instagram you could be in with the chance of winning one of our programs any program of your choice and otherwise i will chat to you next week for another episode of the kim constable podcast hope you have an awesome rest of the week wherever you are and i will talk to you soon bye for now